Hello, I'm your host, William Leighton, and welcome to the Talent Equals podcast. If this is your first time, then it's great to have you here. And if you're returning, well, thank you very much and welcome back. Now, I hope you're enjoying the current rhythm of the show as we're having one industry expert and then one author or expert in a topic. But I'd really welcome your feedback to this rhythm and any suggestions that you have about guests that we're having or people you'd love to hear or things that we could be doing differently. Because I'm doing all of this so that we can take a journey together and I can serve you best figuring out what talent is to you. So please do get in touch via the plethora of social media and methods that you have for reaching me. So in this episode, our guest is Thomas Weddle Weddlesborn. Thomas is going to be our guide on the topic problem solving via his book, What's Your Problem? Thomas is an internationally recognized speaker and top-rated author with the Harvard Business Review. His book, What's Your Problem? has received amazing recommendations from former Google CEO Eric Schmidt and the esteemed thinker Adam Grant. Now, the reason I want Thomas on the show talking about problem solving is if you're in the fintech and insurtech world and you're not trying to solve problems, then I'd argue you're probably in the wrong sector. Anybody at the tip of innovation is dealing with problem solving. And having a way to sharpen this skill, to develop in the way that we tackle decisions and problems, well, that will turn you from being average talent into outstanding talent. So today's episode I've titled, Take Their Perspective. Now, this is a central theme in the book, What's Your Problem?, and something that Thomas and I explore throughout this conversation. And I believe this is a really interesting mental model for you to apply to problem solving and has helped me no ends when I'm dealing with difficult problems. It's a very enjoyable conversation. Thomas is someone I'd love to have back on the show another time to explore themes around innovation and problem solving. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Thomas Weddle Weddlesborg. Thomas Weddle Weddlesborg, welcome to the show. Thank you, Will. Brilliant to have you here. Thank you so much for coming along. Um, Thomas, um, where in the world are you right now? Sitting in uh, New York, uh, far from my ancestral home of uh, Copenhagen, where I'm originally from. Okay, it's good to know. Well, it's um, thank you for joining us in, in New York and crazy times right now. So I'm I'm speaking to you from Devon, England, in, in deepest lockdown right now. So mm. I don't know which one of us is better off, actually. So uh, there we go. Um, <laughs> you can take New York or whatever. I'll take that. Um, Thomas, you joined me today because, one, I love your book. So we've got, we've got uh, a fantastic book that I want to talk to you about today. But also we want to dive into a bit about this whole big theme of problem solving mm. and this idea of problem solving. So we've got a, you know, a number of things I'd like to cover off with you today and talk about. But the book that I first came to know you through is this most recent book that you've written, which is What's Your Problem? To solve your toughest problems, change the problems you solve. So I would maybe like just first of all, for those out there who 
don't really know much about the idea of problem solving and we're all trying to solve problems and specifically though how you talk about in the book about reframing and how reframing is the key to better problem solving so yeah why don't you introduce your book in a much more artful way than I just have and tell us a bit about what you've, uh, what or, you've done. Or maybe it. in a like less artful but longer way. It's <laughs> kind of... <laughs> we'll do that as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah uh, I mean, in brief, it, it comes down to the, uh, the fact that there's kind of a missing skill in our uh, problem-solving toolkit. We've kind of been trained uh, to think that problem-solving is about analysis and then solving, right? You, you analyze the problem and then you go fix it somehow. But before that, there's really something that's called uh, in academia problem finding, or in, I, I like to call it framing or reframing the problem in practice. And that's just something most people, they've never been trained in it. Uh, they're pretty horrible at it when they try. And even people who are good at it, they can't really explain why. And so the book is really taking the like 50 years of research that we have on this topic and, and mixing it with a lot of practice to to really just upgrade people's ability to solve the right problems. Uh, I, I, I can share a brief example if, like, if you know, the slow elevator uh, problem. If, if Yeah, I think, yeah, for those out there, you know, I think whenever you, you Google your name and this book, one of the first things that comes up on YouTube is the example around this slow elevator. And there's a HBR article, which I think was probably one of the sort of the genesis, of the idea, right, that, that focused on this. And I love this example. So yes, please share about the slow elevator. The notion is that you are... Uh, the owner of an office building and your tenants are complaining about the speed of the elevator, it's, it's too slow. And uh, most people in that situation, they kind of, you know, they take the problem for granted and then they focus on solving it. So they say, how do we make the elevator faster? Uh, put in a new motor, uh, go out and buy a new lift, whatever. If you ask a, you know, an experienced landlord, they're going to give you a different piece of advice, which is put up a mirror in the hallway because that's really good at distracting people from the fact that they're waiting for the elevator. What, what that little example kind of highlights is that sometimes what you want to do when you're faced with a problem is actually not to jump into solution mode, but try to just step back and see if there is a different problem to solve. Not necessarily asking why is the elevator slow, but rather asking, is the speed of the elevator the right thing to focus on, or might there be some other aspect of the problem that, that we should really address? In this case, you know, that people notice the weight and get get annoyed by. So, so that's kind of mm. reframing in, in 60 seconds. Yeah. I, I think this is actually a really interesting place to pause because I think intuitively most people will listen when they hear that question, like the elevator's too slow. You're like, well, hey, it's just obviously a crappy elevator. We need to get it to go faster. And that's this sense of like us diving straight into solution mode, as you talk about. And I think even when I'm posed with that question, first of all, I'm, I'm you kind of go, well, isn't it obvious? You just need to get the, the elevator to go, to, go, to go faster. But as you've said, actually, it's more a question of stepping back and trying to gain their perspective and then trying to understand actually, like you just put it, which is a really interesting nuance, is that do they notice the weight? Mm. Right? Are they noticing that they're actually waiting for the elevator? And you know, most of us will know we stood in front of an elevator with mirrors and you just start, you know, doing your hair, you know, sort of bemoaning that last hamburger you had <laughs> that you shouldn't have had. And then all of a sudden the elevator appears, right? Uh, so yeah. That's a really interesting way to rethink it 
it's not the speed, it's the noticing and yeah. the distracting that's more of an issue. Right. And I'm like, you know, if, if you put me in front of a mirror, I'm like enough of a narcissist to go like, no, no, I'll take the next elevator. Go ahead. But yeah, it is just that we, we so easily latch onto like, oh, great, this is a technical problem. Uh, let's fix that. Instead of kind of practicing the art of, of, again, taking a step back and asking, hey, what's going on inside the heads of these folks? Or, or even beyond that, might there be a different, uh, different way entirely of looking at this? Is, this? is this really just the tenants who are trying to squeeze the rent down? <laughs> you know, they are inventing f- fictional complaints. Uh, it, it's just such a basic skill, and it applies to almost any area you can imagine from, you know, you're trying to fix a, an issue with your kids during COVID, or you are uh, dealing with a difficult client, you're doing recruiting, uh, or you are uh, struggling with a strategy problem internally. Like in all of those cases, you want to you wanna be really careful about not just immediately solving the problem that somebody else framed and put in front of you. And that that is a really key point to consider there. Like people give you problems yeah. and we are generally solution orientated folk. We just want to solve the problem, right? We want to get it done. So I'm, I'm sort of interested, maybe just step back a little bit and go, why did you try and tackle this problem? What was it about yeah. this book that you wanted to write? It came from, in, in some sense, the work I did around my first book. So eight years ago, I published my uh, a book called Innovation as Usual with, with, uh, with HBR as well. And uh, that, uh, as part of that, uh, writing it and, and kind of afterwards, I, I was just immersed in a lot of companies' work to do innovation in practice. And it gradually struck me through that, that there is this skill that, uh, you know, around reframing and solving the right problems. I thought we knew how. Like, I, I kind of had this idea, well, we've known about this for 50 years, so surely we're kind of on top of that. And I realized that, you know, if you spoke to people about it, they kind of, okay, they understood that and they agreed, but they didn't actually know how to do it. And there was nowhere they could immediately, like, if if you want to learn how to reframe problems right now, where would you go? Like, sure, you Mm. can invest in a two-year executive education MBA thing or sign up for a Six Sigma course, but that's expensive and takes a long time. Like, where do you Mm. go if you just want that skill right now? Like, you you, want to get will make you or your your team better at solving the right problems in a short span of time. So so I think it was really being in that intersection between management practice, but also knowing the theory behind it and kind of saying, wait, there's there's a mismatch here, if you Isn't that almost ironic that there was a that, that problem solving is one of the biggest issues, but no one had tackled it as a problem. Um yeah. I, I'm I'm actually when I found out about your book, actually, and there are some pretty heavy recommendations. <laughs> There's um, Eric Schmidt, um, Adam Grant, to name just two that most people will notice, and then Douglas Stone and Sheila Heen, two two people who have some fantastic books, and they all obviously caught the fact that this is such a big gnarly problem, but problem solving, like the quality of our life, is based upon the quality of the way that we solve problems that we're faced with. Mm-hmm. So when you sort of delved into the material, though, for, for trying to solve this issue, 
did you realize there was a whole range of information available or was it sort of hard to get at? It was one of the, the key shifts I experienced uh, or reframings, if you will, in writing the book, because this is not a new topic at all. Uh, and if you start like rummaging around in, in the drawers of ac academia and kind of practitioners, there is like almost every single discipline has kind of tried to touch on this. And in the beginning, I thought, hey, I need to include all of this in the book um, until it struck me that the core challenge I was solving for was not to, like to say every single thing that needs to be said on this topic, but rather to create a method that was so simple, you could actually use it in practice. And that meant stripping out a lot or rather relegating it to the footnotes, uh, if you will. Like the, 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 we, we often, I think in academia, we try to elicit every last nuance of things like, oh, notice this, this funny little detail about how something works. And every time we add a layer of complexity, we make it less likely that the method will actually be used in practice. So mm. a big part of my work was after I kind of understood uh, the, the method and how to do it, then actually going and road testing it in companies. So I, so I spent years going around companies and like both teaching them the method and, and then sitting in while they were solving problems and kind of seeing what worked, what didn't work, what kind of pitfalls do people fall into and so on. Uh, that that was really, I think, the the process behind it. Is there anything from those experiences that was specific, quite counterintuitive that you found that you observed? Speed. Um, I think if you talk to people about problem diagnosis, like nine out of 10 will throw that uh, fake Einstein quote at you kind of, oh, if you had an hour, I spent 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. That's horrible advice. Uh, it doesn't come from Einstein either. It's just some random guy who said it at some point. Um, what that advice really tells you is to get trapped in, in paralysis, like in, in analysis by like paralysis by analysis, it's called. You know, in the real world, thinking that problem diagnosis needs to take a lot of time is just a recipe for never getting it done. Because for 99% of your problems, you do not have the option of going off to the mountains for a week and thinking deep thoughts. And so the, the big surprise to me, and I, I developed this in my workshops as well, is you can do this in five minutes. Like it, it, it's literally a question of getting people together and spend five focused minutes on challenging your own understanding of a problem or a situation, of, of just asking a couple of questions to, to try to dig into the assumptions you may be blind to effectively. So that, that, that I think was the biggest aha moment for me. Mm. So speed isn't a negative when it comes to problem solving. It can be a real asset when you have the right tools. So my next question, can you give us an example? I, I would love to get, do you have any example that sort of stands out for you about this type of idea of balancing speed and, and solution? Uh, I, I, I'd say the, the key distinction here is between analyzing a problem and frame, checking whether you framed it correctly, because analysis can take time. But a framing example, um, one company I worked with early on, they were trying to roll out an innovation program because they felt their people weren't innovative enough. And so they're sitting and discussing it uh, in a meeting. The leader of that team 
had some sense that, that that may not have framed it correctly. So he does a crucial thing. He invites his personal assistant, a woman called Charlotte, into the room. And as they're discussing this, Charlotte just says, hey, folks, um, I've worked here for 12 years. I've seen three prior management teams try to roll out an innovation framework, and they all failed. I don't think you have an innovation problem. Literally, that perspective, her adding that to the discussion, just makes them pause everything in their track because they realize, oh, she's right. And they, by by going further and, and like talking to people and so on, they actually recognize they don't have an innovation problem. People had the skill sets necessary to do creative things. They had an engagement problem. Like people, that their employees inside the company didn't feel that the company cared about them. And so they didn't go the extra mile uh, and try to do something new when that might have been possible. So such a fundamental shift sometimes can come from a five-minute discussion. Now, you still need to do the work of analyzing, okay, so what's wrong with our engagement? But if you don't mm. open that door, you're going to like barrel down the road of rolling out a fancy innovation framework that just doesn't work or wouldn't have worked in this case, at least. Yeah, that's very interesting, isn't it? That then, because solving problems is, is a cognitively difficult process and and it requires energy and effort and and geez in big organizations the manpower to do that so getting it right getting that reframing right mm. I, I do observe that and i i'll actually make an admission here because i read through the book and i read through it twice and first time i listened to it the second time i read it and <laughs> i thought i actually missed a really key element to this this book and i think i've shared this with you but it, it's the insight about Mm. perspective over empathy and how dangerous empathy is mm. in reframing. And maybe you could sort of talk a bit to that. And, and for those who are interested, you're going to get this book, which you bloody well should. Um, it's on, this is sort of starts, I think, in chapter chapter eight, taking their perspective. And I sort of maybe just lost this. So yeah, talk to us about like the danger of empathy versus perspective. When you think about understanding other people, uh, the default people jump to is really to understand their emotions. Like, you know, oh, how are you feeling? You know, and that's great. That That's not a bad thing. But when it comes to problem solving, like feelings alone are not necessarily the key to anything and they can kind of lead you astray. If you look at the research here, there's a distinction between empathy and perspective, what's called perspective taking. And perspective taking it's different from empathy in the sense that it doesn't just look, consider feelings. It also considers what do you know? What is your situation? What is your like? Uh, what is your context? Um, the the core like the the basic example I use is to say: imagine that your neighbor is uh, putting up a fence and he is uh, he hits his finger with a hammer. Empathy is to feel his pain as uh, as he hits his finger. Perspective taking is to understand why he's putting up the fence. Like, what's mm. what's his logic here? What's his worldviews and his beliefs? And unless you get that, you can kind of get trapped in 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 just in in the emotion part, uh, which I, I I you know everything that's going on in today's world with identity politics and so on can kind of sometimes show the danger of that too. Mm. Yeah, very true and. I think as you want to go back to the elevator example, that's exactly what I think happens. People go, oh, I feel that pain. Hmm. I know what it's like waiting for something. And 
let's just make it faster. Let's make take away that feeling of frustration and um, you know, annoyance of waiting. But the perspective is very different when you start to understand or put yourself in that person's shoes and think about, mm. okay, what is the experience like? What, how are they experiencing the weight? Exactly. And also going in, like if, if you were to say perspective taking here, you'd say, well, also uh, this might be a question of why do they need to get out of the building? Like, is this an issue with uh, there's horrible coffee in the canteen, so they, they frequent the better coffee store down around the corner? And okay, well, if that's the issue, can we reduce the, the traffic uh, or the demand for the elevator by just making sure we have better coffee in the building? Uh, I mean, I mean, it's the, what I'm highlighting here is uh, the, the mirror. Uh, it's kind of a memorable example of how to solve a problem differently, but it's not the only answer, and it's not necessarily even the right answer. Um, the point is that when you go in and when you start applying this perspective, you can identify typically many different ways of thinking about a problem. Another one could be, well, uh, they need the elevator at 12 o'clock because that's where everybody's lunch break is happening. How about staggering the lunch break so we spread out demand? All of this you don't tend to get unless you consider both reframing and you, you step beyond the immediate feelings of the situation and look at the bigger picture, the context of the situation, the, the knowledge uh, people have, the goals they're trying to achieve. Hmm. That's a very interesting way to think about it. And I have my own personal example that the, the book really helped me think also about the way some of the problems I was facing recently. And um, I had one at this, this Christmas time, as maybe many parents will, that mm -hmm. I, my son, my other son, really wanted a new bike. And the bike, he, he already has a mountain bike, but he wanted a full suspension mountain bike because he believed he wanted to do downhill and various other things. And mm -hmm. so he went straight into a solution mode. Like, I know what I want, so I want to get a new mountain bike. That means I need to buy the mountain bike. Now, I inadvertently got sucked along in that journey as well, trying to help him solve the problem that he had, which was he wanted a new mountain bike and how we could get one for the money he had. Mm. But it, it took me probably a few days to think, actually, hang on a second. Am I even trying to solve the right problem here? And something didn't feel right. And it was at that moment with him that I said, I actually took a step back and said, what does he actually want? What does he, what is the truest, you know, sort of mm. perspective of what he's looking for? And I actually thought that true outcome, what he wanted was fun. Really, when he got down to it, he just wanted to be traveling at speed <laughs> through mud, feeling like, you know, feeling good. And at that moment, I was helped to him reframe it. And he's already got a mountain bike. He wanted to maybe buy a few more features that would enable that to go a bit better. Because I asked him, mm. like, what were the other things that would help you do this? And then we realized he didn't need to buy the mountain bike. So he could then purchase add-ons, which would be much cheaper, much easier, and mm. he could keep his bike. And I thought that was, you know, had I not taken a step back and not sort of tried to gain some perspective on the whole situation, I'd probably be sitting with a very expensive mountain bike right now <laughs> in the garage and not necessarily needing it, right? Yeah. And I think the, the secondary thing I got, and I wonder what you think about this, is because as a as a parent as well, I actually then started realizing that maybe I was trying to solve his problem for different reasons that he was trying to solve his problem. Mm. Um, either I was trying to be a good parent, I was trying to be, you know, provide. Um, and then I realized actually what I need to do is teach him money management skills and delayed gratification. And that brought a whole new set of problems I needed to try and teach, mm. which 
starts loading on and on this sort of cognitive load that you have, the energy that needs to be associated with said problem. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I sort of wonder what you think about that. I mean, one, um, you know, how, how these sort of problems start multiplying and compounding almost, or why we're attacking them in different ways. What's, what strikes me here is um, how often we don't understand our own goals. It's surprisingly, so there's a psychologist, um, Steve DeShazer, I talk about in the book. Uh, he worked in the 80s. He's a, he's a big figure in the field. And uh, his experience was that when people came into his therapy practice, two out of three times, they wouldn't understand their own goal. Like they, they, they weren't capable of giving an immediate answer to the question, well, what do you want? Like, what, what, is, what does success look like for you? And that's another way of reframing, of really just going in and getting clear on what we're trying to do. Are, are we, if you're at a Thanksgiving dinner and uh, you've gotten into an argument with your uh, drunk uncle or father-in-law or whatever, is your goal to win that argument? Or mm. is your goal to maybe have a, you know, a, a, a harmonious time together with the family or even just to understand your father-in-law's perspective better. That mm. there so often we just take our goals for granted, we take our problems for granted, and then we end up barking up the wrong trees. That is a very true observation of where we're at at the moment with the debate in politics, this mm. polarization. People are feeling certain ways, but not being able to take the other perspective or maybe recognizing why you even want to take somebody else's perspective. Mm. Um, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I mean, this this idea of reframing, it, we focus it on business, but you know, it's ultimately a human activity, right? This, yeah. We're thinking about the way that humans solve issues. So yeah, do you have anything to add on that point? Well, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because this applies equally to big societal problems. And I think if, if you even look at uh, the whole Black Lives Matter uh, question, one of the things that, of course, arose was this idea like defund the police. Hmm. Now, if you consider defund the police as a solution, most people who know anything about this will tell you that's a pretty bad idea. And indeed, like I think it was in Seattle, there was actually a period of time where there was an autonomous zone created where the police couldn't enter. And what happened? Crime skyrocketed. Uh, so the, the notion of removing police is a, a pretty bad solution. Now, on the other hand, if you take the expression defund the police, well, it's presented as a solution, but what it really is, is the expression of a problem. Like, it, it is the recognition that something is off here and we need to fix it, and many of the existing reforms we tried, they haven't worked. In that sense, I, I think there's something very true about it and we, we need to may re, to rethink how uh, the police are trained and even to delve deeper into that like there's an economist at uh, Harvard uh, Ronald Fry who's, who's kind of he's gone very deep into that and 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 kind of tried to really tease apart what's really going on in this situation the danger here of course is again with emotions that that the the debate becomes so politicized and so emotionally overheated that we start just missing the nuances and you just go, well, that's a nail. Let's take the biggest hammer we can find and, and sling it down on that nail. Um, there's a long, long history in anything, public policy and whatever, 
that when you do that, you create, more often than not, you create unintended consequences and things get worse instead of better on, on some parameters. So mm. th there is a reason we have a, uh, if I could say this provocatively, we have a representative democracy. The, the whole idea of that is to go in and trust that some experts with good intentions can actually find better solutions than if we simply were to uh, give everybody a direct vote in saying, oh, here's what we do on every single issue of governance. Because we do need to understand these problems in more depth. We do need studies. We, we if, if you drive purely with your emotions at, at, at the wheel, you, you sooner or later go off the road. Yeah, I find actually there's an interesting example about defund the police because depending on where you are, you know, if you're in a, in a community where, in this way, taking perspective is really important. If you're in a community where you feel marginalized, you feel discriminated against, you feel like maybe the, actually the answer is yes, let's defund the police. And if you live in a suburbs of where you have a big house and lots of property that you don't want stolen, you know, you probably think, no, no, we need the police because I need mm -hmm. my stuff you know, protected. And if you don't first of all even appreciate that there could be a different perspective right there, then then that's a problem. And then I, when I was hearing your 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 point there around that is, you know, defund the police. If we're jumping straight away to well, that the their solution for that is just to take away money. Well, it could mean defund the police in terms of purchasing military grade weaponry yeah. to use in civilian situations. It could mean defund the police in um, in sort of sort some sort of training which is. Um, inefficient in the protection and you know, mm. restraint restraint of citizens you know there's a whole kind of a set of nuances i suppose if you spent a bit of time reframing that problem and yeah. saying actually what is a better way to solve it and yeah i'm i'm mm. i'm really drawn to that because there's so many big issues and i, I think on the climate change one if i'm honest if maybe we could touch some big topics right now <laughs> um one, one that's close to my heart which is around climate change and it's such a big problem with so many facets. Yeah. And I'm personally interested in the protection of forests facet of that. Yeah. And specifically, one of the really gnarly problems is around carbon credits. I don't even know this, but you know, I'm discovering that carbon credits are a hugely inefficient solution mm. for the problem yeah. because they only solve one part of the problem and they're very prescriptive in how they can be applied. Well, well, it's uh, now you bring. I I saw a really uh, thought-provoking example of reframing, and this comes from I believe uh, the name is Megan Christ wrote in the London Review of Books about um, carbon footprint. Now, who do you think invented that idea of a carbon footprint? That came from British Petroleum. Hmm. Why would British Petroleum? invent car the carbon footprint as a concept. Well, he, there are some different interpretations of that. You could say they genuinely wanted to create an understanding of like the individual person's contribution to uh, our climate crisis. Uh, or you could say, well, this is corporate window dressing and they're kind of, you know, doing this as many uh, greenwashing. Uh, but I think uh, th this interpretation may not be true, but it is nefarious. Uh, it is a very, very elegant way of shifting the responsibility onto individual consumers to, to say solving the climate crisis is about your actions as consumers that you choose to fly less or, or whatever it is, which may to some extent remove the attention from the fact 
that part of the solution here is systemic regula regulation of, of uh, many big companies, including perhaps British Petroleum or, B or BP. Mm. So I, I, what this is highlighting too, and I don't use a lot of time on this in the book, is of course that reframing can be used as a weapon as well. And mm. everybody knows the classic example of, do we call these insurrectionists, are they freedom fighters or are they terrorists? But, but, but that goes quite, quite far. You, on, there's a huge benefit to, getting, to increasing your problem literacy, to, to understanding framing of problems better. You, you also become better at discovering when somebody's trying to manipulate you, uh, if, if you will. That is, that is very true. There is a positive and a negative side to this. So that's, that's interesting. And I, actually, I recently heard this very point around carbon credits. Maybe maybe not know that you can't apply for a carbon offset when it comes to forest protection unless that forest is deemed to have been under imminent danger or has been, been deemed to be an immediate logging mm. danger, basically. And so if you're protecting pristine central rainforests, which are safe from logging as such mm. by purchasing them, you can't offset the carbon <laughs> as, a, as a purchaser of that, which to me sounds crazy because you're still doing effectively the same thing. But I get it. There's still this issue that they need to say, say and somehow that that would be, you know, they, were, they need to define in some way. But yeah. equally, it, you could exactly say what you said. You know, who else has an interest in framing this problem in the way that they're framing it yeah. to create, to, to meet their own needs? So do you have any other examples of how maybe reframing can, how we can look out for, for, for bad reframing? Well, I, I think one of the... Um... One of the instinct, and this comes back to perspective taking. One one of the interesting findings in this is that you can't trust your own intuitions too much. Uh, well, uh, so uh, one, this is an original finding by um, Kahneman and Tversky. Uh, uh, the notion that perspective taking has two components. It's called anchoring and adjustment. Anchoring is to step into somebody else's shoes. Adjustment is to after that ask, how might they be different from me? Simple example I like to use. Um, imagine you have to go out and buy a toy for your uh, eight-year-old nephew. Now, anchoring is when you imagine yourself as an eight-year-old and you say, well, okay, if I was eight, what would I be excited about? Well, that red fire truck over there, that looks really exciting. I remember I played with something like that when I was a kid. Adjustment is to ask, how might eight-year-olds today be different from what I, uh, my preferences would have been as an eight-year-old? And the answer here would be, does the red fire truck have an internet connection? Because <laughs> if not, <laughs> it may have a very limited shelf life in your nephew's toy collection. Uh, Uncle Thomas is not cool, am I saying? Yeah. Ex exactly, right? <laughs> so... so what, what people, uh, and, and so uh, there's another researcher, Nicholas Epley, who's kind of talked about this. The biggest mistake people do with perspective taking is not to do it at all. At all. They, they literally just do not consider what it might be like if you have a conflict with your sister, what might it be like to be in her shoes. The second mistake, though, is that you imagine it, but you don't invest enough effort into it. Like, what must it be like if you voted for Biden to be a Trump voter? Well, they must clearly just be stupid and not care about anything. Like it, it is so easy to jump into some kind of, you know, easy prejudice 
about other people or or forget to question whether they may see have a different life story than yours and so on. And one of the core findings from perspective taking is you actually have to question that guess, your first guess, no matter how true it feels. Like it, it can feel very intuitively true. Oh yeah, that's right. You know, and yet you will get better at understanding others if you go beyond that and ask, okay, so that's one hypothesis. What else might explain my sister's behavior in, in this situation? Mm. Have you found in working with companies then, like how long it takes people to, to sort of build that muscle of perspective taking? Because, you know, my own experience, it doesn't come easy and it, it takes a bit of time to continually try and take somebody else's perspective, right, on something. Yeah, uh, it, it does. And I think one of, one, of the, um, one of the mistakes companies make is to think that it's only a fiscal act. Like, oh, you should just go spend time with your customers and then you will understand them. Now, to be clear, that's, that's not a bad strategy at all. You, you want to do that. But just the mere act of being exposed to somebody else isn't actually quite enough. Like if, if exposure was enough, well, then our bosses would understand us pretty well and our families would understand us perfectly. You, you, mm. you kind of have to also get into the, the mental journey of kind of truly being curious about who they are, what they want, how do they see their goals, uh, what like even down at an identity level, if you want. And and the good news is here, there is a good deal of kind of tools available, especially from the lean startup world, uh, where you can go in and like user journeys and uh, customer uh, preference mapping and all all of those things mm. that can help. Um, mm. Yeah, I, I don't want yeah. to direct people. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to direct people away from your book too much. Um, but there, you're absolutely right. There's some really good on the uh, um, testing business models, and yeah. and um, there's some great work done on that. On that, where you, you know, draw out your customer and you think about what they want. You know, I, I think actually, I first thing I thought there is like, yeah, it's really hard taking other people's perspective. God, it's and if if just being in proximity to people was the answer, we'd also understand ourselves mm. entirely if that was the case. And and often we don't, do we? Um, we really just don't even understand ourselves a lot. So, and I know from my own interests, if you look at a lot of the fundamental beliefs in, in ancient philosophies and religions like Buddhism and mm. Stoic philosophy, the central tenets are about perspective, about seeing things clearly, seeing things yeah. truly for what they are. I mean, I was kind of getting a bit stunned really when I finally got your book. I was like, oh, wow, this is such a cool topic that I really, really want to read. And you're reading through and I'm going, oh my God, this is like something we should just be learning straight away at school. I mean, this should be yeah. fundamental, right? Taking somebody else's perspective. We teach our kids in a way, look, you know, be nice. You know, how would you feel about it if somebody did that to you? Mm. But maybe we're doing it wrong. We're asking about feelings again. So it can be done, but it just takes lots of effort, right? Yeah. The good news is you can get better at it relatively rapidly. It's, it's not like becoming a true ninja wizard master of this takes time. But even a little... Is that like, the badge? Ninja wizard. <laughs> exactly. Oh, oh yeah. I want yeah, yeah. that one. <laughs> uh, there's a tattoo and there's a club. <laughs> it's kind of like, uh, the, uh, No, I mean, uh, even taking uh, one or two steps in that direction can help. Like, it, it is not uh, It is not a difficult... Well, it's a difficult uh, hill to reach the top of, but actually starting to climb it and getting a clearer perspective, you, you, you do that relatively fast. Uh, so, mm. so 
I, I wouldn't uh, throw the towel in the ring too quick. I mean, what you brought up before with knowing yourself, uh, one of the people I talk about in the book, uh, Heidi Grant, who's a uh, uh, social psychologist, has this kind of useful advice, uh, which is basically ask somebody who knows you well, what do you think a stranger's impression of me would be? Like if somebody, if you didn't know me so well as you do, what do you think people might think about me that, that you of course know is not true. And that, that's really just an elegant mm. way of allowing your friends to diss you <laughs> with, without <laughs> kind of, you know, they, they, they can say things, you know, I know you're such a loving person, but you, uh, strangers might think that you're an egotistical asshole. <laughs> it's kind of like it's, <laughs> you, you know, uh, uh, slightly exaggerated for effect. Um, for the same reason, no, I'm sure a few yeah. have said that about me. Yes, there we go. <laughs> um, no, that no, that that's a great one. So, like, so the question would be: Ask someone who knows you what others might think of you yeah. if they just met you, effectively. Yes, right. Like, what kind of impressions may you be giving off without knowing it? Uh, mm -hmm. Heidi has this example of her uh, somebody she worked with, who's kind of he tried to listen very intently in meetings to really show his staff that uh, he, he cared about their thinking and didn't get very good reactions to it until somebody told him, hey, is, is that like your listening face looks really, really angry. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, when, when you're trying to intently, you know, browse together, uh, <laughs> trying to understand things, people are thinking this guy's about to murder me, <laughs> you know. Uh, so I, things like that, we just don't see, despite looking at our beautiful selves in the mirror every day. Uh, that, that is unfortunately a distorted view, and we need sometimes outsiders to, yeah. to see ourselves more clearly. That is very true. And I think the idea of having somebody, you know, hold up a mirror to you is both terrifying and also quite exciting because you know i i know that my own, I, there's a lady i know um and she does she's a very talented actress but she has this innate knack of copying people mm. and spending some time with you and then being able to copy your mannerisms and <laughs> oh wow yeah you, you you almost don't want her to do it because you know she'll go through other people that you know, and it's incredible, and it makes you laugh. And then she'll often not do it. And I actually asked her to do it to me, mm. but both being not really wanting her to do it to me because you know you, it, it's also you're like, oh crap, what am I going to see about myself, which I really exactly. don't want to see about yeah. myself. Did, 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 right? did and... your friendship survive? <laughs> it's kind of. Uh, 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 wait, I so, she so did she do it? it? Did. And what like? If she did it, I'm curious to hear what uh, what you noticed. Like, what, what shocked you the yes, most about okay, her? Okay, uh, she did. So, so I coach football for this, our children. So my my son is eight, seven, and eight, hmm. and her son is also in the team. So she observes me as a coach and referee at times. So my my the kids, <laughs> and unbeknownst to me, I have a face that apparently says everything that I'm not saying at the very moment yeah. in time when, when I'm coaching. So it may be if, say, one of the kids does something at times which you wish they wouldn't do, i.e. They, they do something, they just completely miss the ball or they, you know, you want them to score a goal and they they, they hit the, the corner post instead of hitting the goal mm. when that was, you know, way, way harder. And apparently it tells all over my face and she would do the mannerism of how I would look. <laughs> and I, inside, I was like, Oh my God, I had no idea that I was telling people how I was feeling so obviously. Yeah. Um, and so her doing that has actually helped me 
think about maybe how people are perceiving me a little bit and how maybe even the kids are perceiving the way I feel about them mm. when I'm so I've kind of had to so so yes she did um, but maybe she pulled some punches as well because I'm still friends with her. So you know, there we go. <laughs> I, I mean, this is, is um, I, there's a tech, there's a tangible advice here for people too, which is uh, finding somebody in your daily circle or colleagues or whatever who's willing to push you to tell the truth, uh, like tell, like confront you with uncomfortable truths, or if you don't have that person, develop that relationship with somebody. Because so here's a story that. Um, my old co-author used to tell a lot, and uh, he, he was sometimes prone to uh, pulling stuff out of his sleeve. So I'm not actually 100% sure this is true, but uh, <laughs> supposedly um, Winston Churchill uh, had on his staff this character called Lord Allenbrook. And in Churchill's diary, you can see how he's really frustrated with Allenbrook. He's like, oh, today, uh, horrible, this horrible Lord Allenbrook again countered my suggestion, blah, blah, blah. And when you looked at it, of course, who had hired Alan Brooke and who kept him on the staff? Churchill did, because there is some part of him that knew that he made better decisions if he had Lord Alan Brooke to get in his face on occasion. That that's that, that, there's a bigger perspective there about like that there is that question: Do you have a friend or colleague uh, who is willing to to be your Lord Alan Brooke and and kind of tell you when you're being an idiot? If not, can you start developing that with somebody? In my case, the lady's name is Polly Whitfield. Um, so yes, um, or maybe it'll be your, you know, so yeah, she was very good at that. That is very interesting. And I think we, because again, it's, it's, it's somebody else's perspective. I actually talk about diversity a lot with clients who are the big theme in, mm. in the fintech and insurtech world right now is diversity because it's mostly dudes and a lot of white dudes at that um, in in businesses as they get established. And the the question gets raised, I need we need diversity. And my number one point around that is, you know, diversity is is important, but maybe it's not important for the reason that people think it is. And what I've always said is diversity is important because of the amount of perspectives it gives you. Like if you come from a ethnic minority um, and you've maybe been poor at some point and you're trying to create a financial services product, what is important to you would have been important to you. Um, would be very different to maybe the the founder who comes from a you know very wealthy middle class white background. Mm. You know, equally, if you're gay, you have a very different perspective on maybe uh, the way the economy works for you. Um, hmm. And it just kind of compounds, right? It's all of these different perspectives. And it's, we can, I think, hmm. make ourselves more robust, right, by surrounding ourselves by these different perspectives. And that's why I talk about diversity. Um, and then I maybe I throw out the one also is that maybe people don't often want true diversity. Hmm. Um, and what I mean by that is that you know, you want maybe race, ethnicity, you know, gender, background, such, but you want generally don't want diversity of intelligence. You want the smartest people you can get, yeah. and you want to try and hire the most people. So sometimes, you know, this this idea of diversity is also sort of um, yeah. could be reframed, and yeah. and we could think about it in, in another way. I I think I mean I always kind of want to want to. Uh, latch onto that a little bit because I think there's some interesting perspectives with diversity. So, so diversity in problem solving is uh, has a good track record of being really helpful. So yes, especially when reframing, like having people with different perspectives, they can better see blind spots uh, that the rest of the group might not identify. I think there's, there's an interesting, uh, it's not a misconception, but it's a pitfall around it that say you're working on a technically complex problem or something like it. 
and then you try diversity in the sense of bringing in somebody who's not like doesn't have the same detailed understanding of the problem they mm. are actually helpful but only if you use them right because the mistake people make there is to expect the outsider to have answers for them and i can tell you if, if you know you're dealing with a technical problem and you pull in an artist or a uh, you know uh, uh, an australian watchmaker who is does wood carving they're not going to be capable of giving you an answer because they don't fully understand the problem the key thing mm. is what they are good at is to ask questions that makes the problem owner think differently they 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 yes. can come in and prompt thinking on on behalf of the t- the, the team that are genuinely experts which can really make a difference you're going to miss that if you just expect the the uh balloon animal artist to waltz into the meeting and and strew uh, you with solutions to climate change that tends not to happen you know that that's a re- that got me thinking actually a really interesting point going back to the football coaching that um i'm trying to teach the children about football and you know often you think you start with this idea that you want them to do you know wing play and cross the ball in all these complex things then you have to go actually hang on a second i need to take it back to basics and and how this came about to me is i in that idea of asking a non-expert who who i was actually samantha who works with me she has no idea about football she's never coached football um and so i wasn't you're right i could never expect her to say give me expert advice on how to coach or tactics but you know what she did? You know, I was talking to her about something I was trying to teach. She, she went, what's a throw-in? <laughs> and I went, oh. And she what's the what's the sideline? And I'm like, oh, you don't know what that is. And I realized probably the kids don't know that either. Hmm. <laughs> We're using, they don't know necessarily what a throw-in. And it was true. They didn't know what the goal line was. They didn't know what like a goal kick was. They didn't know what yeah. the, like, the penalty box meant. They didn't, they had... All of these things that we presumed were right. Now, you're right, though. I had to use her feedback, her reframing in a very certain way. Mm. But it was nonetheless invaluable for me in having a better perspective on what I was trying to solve. Yeah. Uh, Really good example, I think, of of just like how this works in practice. It it can be so impactful if, and it requires you to be willing to listen. Like, when, when yeah. like uh, somebody else might just have reject, rejected that as stupid questions, you kind of went in and said, wait, there's actually something interesting here that I might be capable of learning from. My old um, co-author again, I remember we saw, uh, jointly we saw this presentation by somebody who was a really horrible presenter. And I noticed <laughs> that like I sat there and I went like, oh, that's wrong and that's wrong too. And kind of, you know, and he was sitting happily scribbling. And I, was, I asked him afterwards, like, didn't you know, what, what, why were you so happy? Didn't you notice that the guy was an idiot? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I used him to think. <laughs> you know, it, it, he used that idiot input to, to kind of spur new thinking on his own behalf. And I thought that was such a beautiful example of kind of how mm. to reframe. I spent all that time sitting and saying, no, that's also wrong, you know, <laughs> which is useless. Yeah, that's a very interesting point, isn't it? The opportunity for learning is really dependent upon the learner, um, mm-hmm. not not really the teacher as such. It's that's that's an interesting way to think about. It. It's a nice, in- interesting reframe. I, I think at this moment, you know, Thomas, I'd like to I'd like to pivot a bit because I think you and I share an interest, and um, you're far better at it than I am, and and that's around writing. And you know, you've written now two books 
and this book you've created here. I, I just think maybe you'd sort of talk us through a bit about it because I think writing is such an important skill for people in industries or professional people to develop, but it's a very difficult one to develop. Yeah. Um, so I wonder what your thoughts are on about writing and how you create and sort of take it anywhere you want. So so I'd say overall that writing in my head is not a skill, but really a collective of skills that are not necessarily correlated. So one of those skills is, for instance, uh, just like being good at stringing sentences together. And there are people who are really smart, but who are bad at that. And th- there's there's no shame in such a situation in going out and like find a, uh, a co- co-author or a ghostwriter or whatever. Uh, so we can get your really great thoughts out there. Um, the skill I want to zoom in on, I think, is that of of almost, I think of it as insight development or kind of even deciding what book to write. If it's a book or it could this could be an article or for that matter, it could be if you're giving a talk, what do you want to zoom in on? Because that I think is that the, um, that's the kind of the skill that people know the least about. Like there, there, there's advice out there for how to become a better writer like the craft, but how do you become better at understanding what to write about? And, and in that yeah. perspective, uh, and this is where the link is to, to problem solving and reframing. One of the most fundamental things here is, say you want to write a book. There are so many people who start out uh, being passionate about their solution. They have some kind of like their seven-letter framework or whatever it is, then they want to sell it to the world. Problem is, people don't care about your framework at all. Like... They care about. I'm guilty of that, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, it's but like, were painful for me. We all do it. Like we we <laughs> have this baby uh, in our heads, and we kind of oh, this is a wonderful baby, you know. Um, but uh, this this is a point again. We we spoke about earlier. Uh, Doc Stone and Sheila Heen, who are uh, they they also they're two of the people who gave me feedback on my book as I was writing it. They're super super helpful and amazing people. And um, one of their uh, core points is you you kind of have to start. Not with your solution, but with a felt problem that your uh, readership has. It has it, it has to be you know some kind of challenge that your uh, your audience is struggling with, and uh, it has to be a felt challenge in the sense that it's something they they need to actually recognize. You may have an idea that they have a different problem, but that's going to be hard to sell to them. You need to start from the point of hey, what do you experience? Like, do you also experience that it's hard to motivate your team? Well, here's some good advice on that. So, It's just such a fundamental thing, but I see budding authors spend ages fleshing out their wonderful theory uh, and, and never really just doing the work of getting clear on what problem does this book help my reader solve? So when you're going through that process, I mean, and this is touching a lot of, a lot of mm. interesting points for me because uh, I'm, I'm dealing with a similar issue. I have a good solution, but I don't know if there's actually a good problem for it. I think there is a good problem for it, but I don't know if people feel it. They don't feel the problem. And yeah. that's very hard to, to attack giving a solution if they don't really feel it. Mm. Um, so how, is there like a methodology? Do you have a way that you do this? Is, is somehow you're approaching yeah. so I know we've just got the book, but... Um, <laughs> Any other tips you can give out to that, all these frustrated writers? Yeah, I think uh, a couple of things probably. I think the, the first one is just the distinction that's helpful to understand. Um, and that's this distinction between um, obvious versus overlooked problems. Uh, 
Now, this this is going to sound a little bit counter to what I just said, and uh, I'll explain uh, in in what sense these two things are compatible. But you can tackle an immediately obvious problem, like we we spoke before about how to motivate your team. Right now, there's a, a ton of people struggling with that. My sister-in-law, Mireille uh, Widell Widell-Spork, she just wrote an article on HBR uh, about that topic, how to energize your team during COVID. And that became HBR's most read article on the site for all of December. So so clearly there's something powerful, if you have good advice, of kind of really hitting the, the head uh, of, of or hitting the nail, head of the nail on the something, a problem people feel right now uh, that is really taking up a lot of space in their heads. Now, having I, I almost feel like I, I almost feel like I need to pause here a second. So your yeah. sister has also now got what the hell uh, is sister. in the water at the Wedderburg house? Uh, no, I, no, can it, you it, get it, some for it, me, please? In, in this case, only the uh, <laughs> the art of uh, picking a good spouse because it's not my sister; it's my sister-in-law. So it's my brother oh. who should be crediting with uh, <laughs> with uh, uh, well, she, she's married to, to my brother. Frame it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, um, no, uh, so I'd say that's one topic. And the, the, mm. the important thing there is, of course, that you, first of all, you have a really clear understanding of the problem and then that you have useful, credible advice on it. Now, mm. I've gone a different route. Uh, I have in both cases, I've been really on, like we spoke about problem finding earlier, the academic term for, for what we're talking about. I've always been on the lookout for overlooked problems that once you once you mention them to people, they actually recognize it is a problem. So it's still a felt problem, but they're not immediately aware of it. Like in my first book, Innovation as Usual, there is a recognition that a lot of the innovation talk out there was aimed at people in Silicon Valley, or if you're a CEO and could just like big strategic thinking and whatnot. What was missing was a guide for people who were in a big company somewhere down in the middle of the machine they had a day job. Uh, it was a bureaucratic place, and they had to manage, like, make innovation happen at the same time. That was mm -hmm. kind of an, a, a missing skill. And when those people read books about how two entrepreneurs in a garage in Silicon Valley should just fail faster, I mean, it didn't apply to them because they were sitting in a pharma company, and failing meant people maybe getting like death and destruction and whatnot. So uh, that was the first book, finding that problem and recognizing that it hadn't been properly answered. And on, of course, weirdly enough, on a meta level, that's the same thing with reframing. Like if you look at the, call it the problem of problem solving, it is that we are, we are good at, we're good at analyzing, we're good at solving, but we're not good at framing. It was just this big missing link or missing skill in problem solving that I, and, mm. and it took me a while to recognize how, how widespread it was. But the second, I write about this in the book. Um, I was running a course for a big tech company where uh, as part of a one week thing, I had two hours where I taught them reframing. There was like some uh, 300 people in the room. They were all the uh, top talent from the entire company that was gathered there. And my reframing session ended up scoring the highest of all the sessions they had that entire week. And I was that, well, wonderful, but that worried me. Because I was thinking, wait, if these people in Silicon Valley, in a Fortune 500 company, top talent in their company, if they don't know how to reframe, how, what? You, you, mm -hmm. I, I think that was the moment for me, it really struck me that we needed to teach this. Well, I think we spoke about it before, 
I think it's insane that people aren't taught this in school, you know, in their very, like at entry level job positions, mm-hmm. because for sure, it's not just the top of the organization that has problems we need solving and getting better at solving the right way. I, Thomas, I think, you know, the idea that you said it, discovery of felt problems that aren't really recognized. And I think problem solving was that one for me as well. Honestly, I was like, oh yeah, this is definitely something I need to investigate. This is fantastic. Like how we make better decisions about the problems we're trying to solve mm. so that we can then apply ourselves more effectively, more efficiently, you know, just be better at navigating the myriad um, mm. problems that we're constantly faced with. And um, yeah, I mean, it, I feel that. So I think my when I was hearing you say that, I suppose my, my initial thought was like, well, have you got any heuristics that have you found help you uncover some of these? Anything that you, that's sort of like the, the, the sort of the canary in the coal mine yeah, to, you yeah. know, you're getting close to something. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I have both some discovery heuristics and then a heuristic for whether it's uh, worthy of publishing, if you will. Uh, <laughs> the, the discovery heuristic is, uh, is that's basically as a rule of thumb, I'm always... Of course, I'm looking at cases. We spoke about that for when I run into somebody who succeeds when you wouldn't expect them to. You're kind of like, wait, what? What happened there? Or this what goes counter to my beliefs about innovation and how it works? How come it worked? And and so a, a basic curiosity around the things you encounter on your way. Whenever you see, I think it's Clay Christensen who spoke about anomalies and how he loved those because anomalies point you to where your model of the world isn't right. Um, I have a thing around common wisdom that, uh, or cliches, if you will. Like in any field, there are these things that everybody just keeps repeating like parrots because they kind of sound smart. But very often when you go into them, there's kind of, there, there's, in, there's gold to be dug either by challenging them or by, by like, for instance, oh yeah, innovation the sky's the limit. You shouldn't put limits on yourself with innovation. Well, a lot of the successful people I saw innovate in big companies, they did that. They 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 deliberately constrained yeah. their search uh, and they were more successful than the people who thought it was about blue sky to take all as much risk as you can get away with. Not, not always a good recipe. So mm. I think I'm looking, whenever I run into oft-repeated kind of common wisdom things, I start to get curious about uh, going further into that. The final thing I mentioned, um, one of the good tests for whether this can attract, for instance, the interest of a magazine or a book publisher is to ask whether there's anything counterintuitive in it or, or, or new in it. Because if your recommended solution is something people already know, what's the benefit of writing about it? Like, why why would you go out and share that? In the first article I wrote for HBR, um, the classic example here is you have a good idea, uh, so how do you get that moving forward? Well, go to the CEO and get his or her approval. Okay, you you can't write an article early on that because that's such an <laughs> obvious piece of advice. And by the way, it's really, that's really hard. So yeah. I wrote an article on how many of the companies, or sorry, many of the people I'd worked with in companies, how did that they make things happen? Well, they actually didn't go to the CEO. They kept it under the radar. They started using their friendships and alliances. They started building small prototypes. And that way they kind of navigated the politics of innovation 
to actually make it happen. So so you have to have like if if you look at your answers and you say, well, this is something that's pretty obvious to people already, mm, then at least it can't be the conclusion of your book. Then then you have to get into the detail of saying, okay, if this advice is obvious, well, tell me the non-obvious truths about how to make it happen. Because anybody can tell you it's a good idea to spend four times as much time with your customers and your individual employees and really coaching and listening to them. But how on earth do you do that in practice? If you can tell me how to do it in practice, now I'm listening. If you're just telling me that I need to spend more time listening without telling me how, that's useless. I mean, that that's you told me something I already know and that's really difficult to do. Thank you. <laughs> and and that, in that, that final one, this idea of sort of counterintuitive... Um, solutions is because it's a, what I feel in that is that it unlocks like a felt problem back to sort of uh, Sheila Heen and Douglas Stone's mm. thing that it unlocks a felt problem for you that and there's like a surprise associated with that and then in that recognizing that there's oh yeah 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 so of course you don't want to let everybody know about it first because then politics just destroys the idea mm. so you know building these sort of um, sort of underground networks, if you want, of sort of innovation to get your thing to prototype before you, you know, re- reveal it. That can sound like a really cool way to do it. I hadn't really tried that, but it makes a lot of sense. I get it. Um, that's is so that in that there's some there's some uh, an opportunity to, to uncover a real felt issue, yeah. felt problem, as you put it. Yeah, and and like linking mm. back to how 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 do you know what to write about? I mean, my understanding from all of that came from people whom I had studied. So I have a habit of whenever I run into anybody who's done something really interesting, I, I go in and I want to write a case about it. And I say, hey, tell me exactly how how this happened and let me talk to your colleagues as well. And like, suddenly you get all the richness of uh, a real case that illustrates it. That I think one of the problems with people who want to write is that they have a theory, but they don't have specific examples. And then you have to ask, well, if you can't actually mention a real-world example uh, that uh, of your theory, uh, does it hold water? <laughs> like, it's a lovely theory, but people need both the abstract theory and the tangible examples of how somebody put that theory to use in order to make it work. Uh, you know, from my book, you know, there's a uh, there's a ton of examples from most of them from people I work with uh, for how they solved problems differently. Without that, if you don't have the examples, it's it's uphill, and people don't want to read again about Steve Jobs. They it's actually more interesting to read about some completely unknown person who had an interesting problem, and your merit is that you sat next to that person as you helped them solve that problem and can tell the story. And so this is, I suppose, the idea of like kind of, you know, identifying, you know, a problem and then testing that problem and then, and then having to go out to making sure that testing is making sure that other people are actually trying to, are fixing it that way. Yeah. Are there anybody else? So you've yeah. got this identified, this underground approach to developing a product and you have to go out and find us. And, I think the anomalous success one and, and, the, mm. and I also really like the way that you use them, the cliche idea or the sort of common wisdoms and how to attack those. And, yeah. and is there something in that? It's yeah, really obvious. It, 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 it's al- almost an evidence of itself that if people knew how to do it, we wouldn't be repeating it so often. Like, you know, keep mm. an open mind. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of, again, a, a useful piece, of, uh, no, sorry, useless piece of advice because it's easy to say, but nobody 
like knows how to do it when when they're standing in the in the moment. I think one other vetting thing that's necessary to add here is you you can be led into drawing wrong conclusions if you only, for instance, look at the winners. Uh, you know, or you the classic example is uh, from the Steve Jobs story that people conclude it's a good idea to be an asshole because Steve Jobs was sometimes in at least in his early career an asshole, but he may have been an outlier. And so what you do need to do is to uh, burrow through the theory in your field too and kind of understand what does the research look like here? Because research is it's really just a compilation, a systematic compilation of lots and lots of different people's experiences with a specific thing done in a way uh, so we know we can trust the findings. And if, you're, you know, if you have a pet theory and all the research speaks against it, I would say then you have a problem. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, so so maybe for like the average listener who's out there, maybe as a you know a divisional head, and they're thinking about this research, and maybe they're thinking, oh my god, um, you know, for for you know, I know you've been published on a, you know HBR a number of times, and it's a really you know a pinnacle website to be on, and it's a lot of people competing for it. So I suppose in sort of getting onto that, what do you generally have to put into the sort of research of an article? For example, I mean, you want to talk about a book, but mm. just to to get the evidence that you just talked about to test your hypothesis to the point that you're ready to know that your problem is needs yeah. a solution. Yeah. Well, well I'm, I'm I'd almost like to kind of like from from a very practical perspective uh, say you don't need to do the research yourself always. There's people, mm. lots of other people who may probably have studied what you're doing, so it's often more a question of finding it. Uh, and very specific thing I do is uh, using Twitter for it. Most people think of Twitter as this uh, cacophonious hell of, you know, people shouting at each other about political opinions. But if you find the right people to follow, there are actually researchers out there from uh, really interesting kind of institutions that post about new research. Uh, one one particular guy, like this guy called Ethan Mollick from Wharton, uh, he just posts a ton of Ethan Mollick. He wrote a book called The Unicorn Shadow um, about like entrepreneurship. He posts a ton of interesting research, old and new, about uh, entrepreneurship and, and related topics. And so whatever field you're interested in, I can guarantee you there's probably a good deal of people posting about that on, on, on Twitter. Go find those people, follow them. And uh, that that's probably one of the best ways to quickly become aware of the interesting research uh, that's out there, so you can start. So you can start making sure you're not just developing a pet theory that only works for you, but will work for nobody else. Mm, that's a great one. Yeah, there are actually. So I remember actually coming coming across somebody's research on Liverpool Football Club and football analytics, and he published some of the most amazing analytics I've ever seen. It was maybe a little bit too too much for the kids I'm training, but um, <laughs> to that point, it, he'd done some incredible stuff, which which was really helpful. So I heard. So you sort of you. So just in sort of you know recapping that bit. Thank you so much for this stuff, Tom. It's really interesting sort of discovery heuristics that you got there. Sort of you know looking out for sort of anomalous success, um, looking out for common wisdoms and sort of mm. maybe what might be counterintuitive about those and maybe not be right about them. Um, then also asking, is there anything yeah counterintuitive about and sort of diving into that a bit more. Um, I think that was those are really interesting ways to think about discovering cool ideas. Um, 
have I missed anything there? Is there anything I've, I've butchered in your own explanation? Uh, <laughs> no, no more than I butchered it myself, I think. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, uh, I mean, this is it's a topic that interests me a lot because different authors have very different approaches to this. And I think there's a lot mm. of different ways that can work. Mine is by far not the only one. Um, but I found it useful just in my own work to think a little bit more systematically about these things. Like... What, what makes, there are some really smart people that uh, they show me some kind of draft for an article they hope to get published and it's, it's, it's horrible. And I'm like, no, hey, there's a couple of fairly simple rules of thumb that can actually pretty quickly upgrade what you're trying to do uh, if, if you're kind of getting there. But I think that bad piece of advice, or at least in my view, bad, about, oh yeah, just open a page and aim for writing five pages a day and soon you'll have 400 pages. Yes, of crap. <laughs> the, I, I, I mean, to be fair, that works for some, so I don't want to disparage it too much. Sometimes that is necessary uh, in order yeah. to you to move forward. But but um, if you approve, I think she, she, Sheila and Doc calls it uh, the shitty first draft. You, you, you have to have it, but you also have to remember it's shitty and it needs to be improved a lot. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think I should have recently read on on Twitter. In fact, Ryan Holiday is is a very mm. prolific author as well. He he talk about you really need to have a clear sense of what you're trying to solve. In, yeah. And I think to this point, and if guys, if you want to get it on there, he's kind of written down what he needs, what you need to do when you're writing a book. And um, he, so I think what you've just said really sort of chimes with me. And I'm you know also uh, uh, you know someone who has a a piece of work that I'm trying to frame in the right way, trying to find the right problem for it i think i know the problem but i don't know if people really have it. it's a felt problem mm. so um this is really helpful for me um thomas i'm, I'm mindful of time and and I, I just want to say thank you so much and you know just you know your book this this you know what's your problem book that you wrote for it is a fantastic book and i um i've genuinely it was one of my favorite ones that i read this year alongside with, with sheila heen and douglas stones um thanks for the feedback um and I, I would really think that anybody who's looking to improve the way that they just are tackling their life and their business, they should read this. So thank you for for writing it. It really was a great piece of work. Um, thank you for sharing sort of the experiences that you've given us today as well, because that's been like super helpful. Um, if people want to find you, um, <laughs> how do they find you, Thomas? Are they <laughs> yeah. on social media? <laughs> uh, I, I stay as hidden as possible. Uh, no, uh, no. Uh, my my uh, surname will lead you to me relatively rapidly. It's one of those weird uh, Danish double barrel things. So uh, googling uh, Thomas Waddell Waddell Spark or uh, to, or just even reframing will probably get you there. I have. I have a couple of sites, but uh, that or maybe the uh, like the book What's Your Problem uh, published here uh, last year with uh, Harvard Business Review. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Well, um, again, a uh, big thank you for leading us through some of your thoughts there, some really interesting stuff. And um, well, I, uh, I wish you the best of luck with the next project that you're working on. And uh, again, thank you. Thank you, Will. And well, before you head off, I just want to say a massive thank you to Thomas for joining us on the podcast. I think you'll agree it was a fantastic show and he's a wonderful thinker. Do please grab that book, What's Your Problem? It's been one of my favorite books in 2020. Again, I just want a big shout for Exige International, who are the sponsor of Talent Equals. Without Exige International, we could do none of this. So if you need to find outstanding talent and execute a search, then please give us a shout here at Exige and we'd love to support you 
building your leadership team. Thank you to the whole production team, Samantha Smart. Her work is incredibly important in making this podcast possible. Thank you to all of you as well for tuning in and we'll see you again on another episode of Talent Equals. So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.